Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace, your love and your mercy, your kindness to us. I'm reminded right now of Romans where it says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's really true, God. We're going to see that today. That though your word gives us great challenges when it comes to things like holiness and obedience and knowing your word and things of that nature, that at the end of the day, you also provide us the, the amount of grace that we need to be able to please you and live the life you've called us to. Lord, if, if nothing else, may we walk out of here this morning with that message. God, as you know, we're a church that loves your word. Uh, in many ways, we overdose on your word because we are, are so convinced that it is life to our souls. And uh, so, Father, I pray that as we open your book now, that uh, you'd give us wisdom. May we rightly understand it so that we might live it in an appropriate way in our lives as well. And so bless this time, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, let me begin by, by asking you a question. Look up here on the screen. What do Lincoln's Gettysburg's, Gettysburg Address and uh, William Wallace's Freedom Speech, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream Speech, JFK's statement about putting a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s, the Declaration of Independence, and Martin Luther's famous 95 theses posted on the door of the Wittenberg Church all have in common? Well, that's kind of a baiting question, isn't it? Well, they have a lot of things in common, I'm sure, but one of the things that I'm getting at is that at the very least, they're all known by most people as above all else kind of statements. Above all else kind of statements. Many of you know what I'm talking about. The kind of statements in which a person is basically saying, above all else, this is what I want you to hear. Above all else, here is what I need you to know. And then they go on to say what they say. And so whether it's Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or Martin Luther's King's, I have a dream. Oh, back up one there. Guys, thanks. All right, go back to the pictures. All right, we're going to get this right in this service. We'll be golden for the rest of the day. All right, if you can get back to the pictures, that'd be great. Thanks. And then they go on to, to, to say what they're going to say. And, and, and then they go on to say it. And, and it's these above all else statements that come out of their mouths. All of us are familiar with these kind of statements. They're summary statements. They're line in the sand statements. They're the kind that summarize what is most important and what is most crucial given what lies ahead. And they're the kind of statements that we all use to communicate what really matters most. Most of you and your kids had parents that would say once in a blue moon an above all else kind of statement. They wanted to communicate something to you that was so important that above all else you needed to hear. And if I don't miss my guess, you use these same kind of statements right now in your world as well. And so if you can grab onto this today, and I think that most of us can, then you can understand what Peter is doing as he wraps up this short little letter that we've been studying here at Scottsdale Bible over the last few months. You see, Second Peter, the book that we've been studying, is the last letter that Peter was ever going to write. It's true. These were his dying words. He knows that he's going to die soon. He tells us this in chapter 1. And so he's decided to write to some outpost churches some things that he hopes that they will never forget. And in so doing, he gives them, and by extension us, no less than eight key challenges. Eight things that they need to know on how to get the most out of their walk with Almighty God this side of heaven. And so as we've gone through chapters 1 through 3 of this little letter, we've noticed seven challenges so far. And today we get 
get to the last challenge. The last four verses of the last chapter. The last words, latch on to this folks, that Peter was ever going to pen. These are like the final words of his final words. These are his above all else statements. These are the last things that he wants us to know. And so here is Peter's last challenge. Here is his above all else statement to you and me about what really matters most in our spiritual life. Now give me the click. And that is that above all, make it your life's pursuit to know God. Above all, make it your life's pursuit to know God. And though this might sound so simple, folks, it is so profound in its ability to center us on what really matters on planet Earth, this side of heaven, quite frankly, for the rest of the days of our life. Look at how Peter goes on to share this truth with us. Again, his final words. Look at the last five verses of chapter 3 of Second Peter. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, open up to Second Peter. We're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the Scriptures up here on the screen. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these of these in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and for both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Years ago, when I was in a seminary, which is about uh, 20, 25 years ago now, I was home one summer in Cleveland, uh, just working to get my way through seminary and living with my parents. And my dad and I, one Sunday morning, before they were going to head off to their church, and I was going to the little evangelical church I was going to, were just talking about kind of the evangelical Christian scene and all that was going on in our country at that time. Many of you remember what was happening back then. Jimmy Carter had become a born-again Christian about ten years earlier, and this brought evangelical Christianity squarely into politics. Jerry Falwell had started the moral majority, and this began the culture wars. Jimmy Baker, guys remember him, was building Heritage USA, this huge Christian theme park and even this huge Christian retirement center. And so the commercialization of Christianity was happening in our culture. And many of you remember this too, Christian rock music had squarely hit the scene by then. Amy Grant was wearing that leopard skin outfit and gone crossover and all that. And and I mean, it was just like, whoa, Christian rock was here and it was here to stay. All these things were happening within our American culture when it came to evangelical Christianity. And as my dad and I were discussing all this, I'll never forget, he looked at me at one point, and this was one of those defining moments for me, and just casually across the breakfast table, he said to me, Jamie, don't ever forget this. He said, your only and really number one and only thing that you are to do as a minister is to help people know God. He said, you're going to be tempted to do lots of other things and get involved in lots of other activities as a minister, but don't ever forget that what God is calling you to more than anything else is simply to help people know and understand Him. Folks, my dad's not even an evangelical Christian. He doesn't agree with the doctrine that you and I rally around. And I thought to myself that, that morning, he nailed it. He's dead on. 
I'll never forget those words as long as I live as to exactly what my role is. And this is exactly what Peter is saying here. That the primary purpose God has for you and me on planet earth is that we might know Him. That we might learn about Him, walk with Him, honor Him, serve Him. As a great Westminster Confession said so well hundreds of years ago, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it's true. We've been put here on this earth for the primary purpose that we might know God and to learn to find our satisfaction in Him and in everything that He provides. That's what Peter is getting at here in his closing words. That's what he's saying to us above all else. And so once you get this, even if you just get it intellectually, the question becomes, well, how do we do this? I mean, in the midst of all the stuff that goes on around you and me, in a world and culture that gives us so many mixed messages on what it means to be spiritual, and even an evangelical climate that is so prone to sideshow issues and sideshow theologies, what is it that you and I need to be about, above all else, that will allow us to walk with and know Almighty God? That's the key question. And though the Bible tells us there are multiple things that we can do and be about to walk with God, in Peter's closing words here, when you look close, he shares with us no less than three things. Three key things that are indispensable to any meaningful and take you somewhere kind of walk with God. And the first thing that he shares with us is this, and it's hard hitting, but we've got to wrestle with this, it's true, and that is that we know God through our holiness. There's no way around him sharing this with us. He says that we know God through our holiness. Look again at verse 14. You'll see this. He says this. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, meaning the end of the age that he wrote about in chapter two, or earlier in chapter 3, he says, Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Focus on that little phrase, Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. Folks, almost surely, when Peter's original audience read or heard these words, they would have thought of a few things. First, they would have thought about the Old Testament and how God commanded that only a lamb without spot or blemish could be used as a sacrifice for sin, right? I mean, they had to have thought of that. They had to have thought of the fact that in Exodus 12, we talk about the Passover, that God commanded you find a lamb, one year old, not like all the other lambs, a perfect lamb, without spot, without blemish, set apart, not like all the other lambs around it, and that's the lamb that you use for your sacrifice for sin. And the Old Testament would go on and on to use that phrase, without spot or blemish, without spot or blemish, in describing the kind of sacrifice God was looking for. It was a holiness term. And then as their minds continue to think, Peter's audience would have also thought further about Jesus and how Peter in his first letter described Jesus as a lamb without spot or blemish. The Holy One, also unstained and uncorrupted by the world around Him. And then as their neurons continue to fire, I'm also guessing they would have thought about the very last chapter of this book that we're studying, where Peter talks about the false teachers and how they are the opposite. They are blots and blemishes, unholy, in that they had fallen into all kinds of doctrinal error and immorality, sinning like crazy as they claimed to be followers of Jesus. I think they would have thought about all these things. And you get the picture. As they link the Old Testament with the New Testament, they would have thought about holiness. That's what this word picture, without spot or blemish, would have connoted to them. The call to be holy. And then when they would hear those words, to be found in Him in such a way as to have a certain level of holiness, they would have realized that holiness 
is one of the key ways that we know and walk with God this side of heaven. You see, folks, holiness is simply becoming like God in all of our actions and behaviors. There's no way around it. Holiness is a moral thing. It is a lifestyle thing. I read books all the time on the Christian scene, and I'm amazed in our, in our culture today, people try to get away with trying to redefine holiness sometimes. You know, and they, they kind of try to define holiness as a relational thing and as an intimate and a personal thing. And, and that's all true, and we'll see how that all works in a minute here. But at the end of the day, it, you can't get away from the Bible's definition of holiness. And that is, is that it means that you're set apart from the world around you. You're not like them, but you're like God in all of your actions and your behaviors. Holiness, by its very nature, carries with it moral overtones. It means to align your life as one who follows Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you have to become a legalist in your faith, somehow trying to earn God's love by your actions. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't even mean that you see the sum total of your Christian faith as actions and behaviors. But it's simply realizing that there is a behavioral component to one's walk with God, a moral component. And instead of becoming that proverbial hypocrite, you do your best to be like God and Jesus in all that you say and do. And Peter's point is simply this, and he repeats it throughout all of First and Second Peter, and that is that through holiness, we know God, that we become like Him, and hence draw closer to Him. I love it. G.K. Chesterton once said this. Look up here on the screen. He once said, Men do not differ much about what they call evils. They differ enormously about what evils they call excusable. <laughs> and he's right, right? I mean, all of us know what we're to do. Anybody here today know what you're not supposed to do on a moral level? Like, duh. Romans tells us that it's written on our hearts, that we have this thing called a conscience. So most of us know what to do and what not to do in our lives. But we have this uncanny ability, don't we, to justify what we do as somehow not that big of a deal. And Christians are really good at this, especially Christians living in the 21st century. And yet the flip side is that when we hear and respond to God's call to be holy, we find ourselves truly being at peace. Like we've now found the sweet spot in our lives and have truly come home. And and God even then uses this to help others find Him as well. Holiness, this idea of behaviorally becoming like God, having a level of morality and set-apartness in our lives, is like a really good thing. And God uses it to draw us to Him and even others to Him. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, From 1991 to the year 2007, Fuller Theological Seminary's School of Intercultural Studies conducted a survey among 750 Muslims who had become Christians. It's the most vast study we know of today on conversion, especially from one faith to another. And those surveyed represented 50 ethnic groups from 30 different countries. So for 16 years, they polled over 750 Muslims who had decided to become Christians. And their main question was, what caused you, what motivated you to switch faiths, to become a Christian? And though they list nine things in order of how these respondents uh, with the survey revealed, the, the top three blew me away. You ready for this? Top three reasons that Muslims convert to Christianity. One is that the Christians around them practice what they preached. Number two, Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which women were treated as equals. Number three, Christian to Christian violence around them was less prominent than Muslim to Muslim violence. Are you starting to notice a pattern here, folks? They don't get to doctrine until number five. 
When it talks about the fact that as they looked at the Koran and looked at the Bible, the Bible had some doctrines that they were more drawn to. Doctrine rated number five out of the top nine reasons as to why Muslims want to convert to Christianity. The top three reasons all had to do with holiness. It all had to do with the behavior of Christians around them having a behavior that stood out that was kind of a head-turning kind of thing. And when they saw that behavior, they said, whoa, there must be something to this Christian faith. And the specific behavior I'm seeing draws me to want to know more about God. That's what Peter is saying. That in our holiness, we know God. And in our holiness, others can know Him as well. Not set away. Now, Peter's not done yet. Not even close. And so notice the second way that he tells us that above all, we can know God. And that is that we can know God, or we know God, through His Word. We know Him through His Word. And so look what Peter goes on to say in verses 15 to 16, then 18 of this last letter he wrote. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures, but grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, this is one of the most powerful and revealing passages in all of the New Testament. It really is. I'm not overstating the case. And the reason that this is so is because what Peter is doing here is communicating as well as affirming that what Paul the Apostle had just been writing, like 13 letters that now comprise almost half of our New Testament, is nothing more and nothing less than Scripture on par with all the other Scriptures that they rallied around that were contained in the Old Testament. Peter is affirming here that what Paul was writing was and is God's Word. You see, when Peter says here that God had given Paul wisdom, do you see it there in verse 15, wisdom? Please know, that's not like God just giving you and I wisdom today. Like, totally different thing in that context there. In that context there, it's what we call a divine passive. The fact that, that in the tense there of that verb that was giving wisdom, it means that Paul was simply a passive recipient of all this wisdom that God was foisting upon him. That's not how you and I seek wisdom. You and I seek wisdom in an active sense, an active tense. We go out and ask God for it. James 1.5, and we say, God, give us wisdom. And he does. This was Paul just kind of minding his own business. And God saying, I'm going to give you some wisdom. Write it down because all the ages need to know about this. It's direct revelation given to Paul by God. And as if this were not enough, then you got verse 16 here in our text where Peter goes on to link Paul's writings. And again, I quote, with the other scriptures. It's the Greek word graphos, which literally means writings, almost always referring to the Old Testament as God's word. And so don't miss, folks, that Peter is placing alongside the Old Testament, the other scriptures, Paul's writing, giving them equal billing when it comes to their importance and place as God's word to us. And so when you add all this up, wisdom, and then the writings, Peter is telling them, and by extension us, and it's literally one of the earliest attestations, that God's revelation, His Word, was not done yet. That the Old Testament was the Old Testament, but now there was a New Testament to be finished and completed by the New Testament writers. And, and the point then is clear and summed up in verse 18 when he says, So grow in your knowledge. Grow in your knowledge. Grow in your understanding and living out of this Word, His revelation to you, because it's right in front of you. 
It's being penned right now in front of you, Peter is saying. So grow in your knowledge of this kind of word. And then he's saying to us today, hey guys, you've had it for 2,000 years now. And you got more Bibles than you know what to do with. Can you guys relate to that? Like how many Bibles do you have in your family home right now? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? I mean, there's people in China that would love to have just one, right? So we got all these Bibles and Peter is saying, man, you don't realize what you have. Grow in your knowledge of God. How do you know Him? How do you understand more about Him in such a way that you can walk with Him like a father does his child? Know Him in and through His Word. That's what Peter is saying. And all I can tell you, folks, is what a challenge this is to you and I, especially living in our 21st century American culture. It really is. I want to show you why this is such a challenge. In 2007, George Gallup, all of you know who he is, the famous pollster, did a survey of Americans and and revealed that 31% of Americans, not just Christians, but Americans, believe that the Bible is, and I quote, literal and inerrant. He further found that another 10% of Americans affirmed that the Bible is the literal Word of God. And then he found an astounding another 26% of Americans affirming the Bible to be the inspired Word of God. So different wordings trying to draw out what Americans believe. And so adding this all up, whether you see it as literal or inerrant, or the Word of God or inspired by God, the overwhelming majority of Americans... In the most recent poll, at the very least, believe the Bible to be a very important holy book given to us by God. So can we all understand that? And this is why in a recent 2008 Harris poll of 2,500 Americans, once again, the Bible rated as the number one favorite book by most Americans. Right next to, interestingly, Gone with the Wind and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's true. But the Bible's still rated number one among Americans. So we are a country that just loves the Bible and believes it comes from God. But interestingly, in the same year that Gallup was doing his study, 2007, Kelton Research was conducting a similar study in anticipation of a new animated movie release of the Ten Commandments. And they found in the study that 80% of respondents knew that a Big Mac had two all-beef patties. It's true. And they found that 62% knew that it had pickles, and less than 50% of these same respondents could name seven of the Ten Commandments. And what was even more pathetic is that they found that most people polled could remember all four of the Beatles, and far less could cite just one of the Ten Commandments. And so put all this together, folks. you got a culture and society that overwhelmingly believes that the Bible is God's book to us, but they don't know it very well. Even simple things like the Big Ten. And what I would submit to you is that there just possibly could be then a correlation between our lack of knowledge of this book and the fact that we might not know God as our hearts want to know Him. Let me ask you, how many of you know what the prime meridian is? Raise your hand if you know what the prime meridian is. Uh, you kind of do. It, it's the cousin of the equator. The prime meridian, look up here on the screen, give me a click here. Great. The prime meridian is, is, is actually found in England. You can go to it and visit it. It's an imaginary line that runs through England, France, Spain, Western Africa, and all the way down to Antarctica, and it divides our world longitudinally. 
You know how the equator divides our world in latitude? It divides our world longitude. And so along with the equator, we can now divide our world with the prime meridian and the equator into four hemispheres, north, south, east, and west. And though this might not seem like a big deal to you, it is because of the prime meridian and the equator that all human beings can now have an agreed-upon map and plot coordinates and find their exact place in the world at any given time as well as agree on what time it is. Because you've heard of Greenwich Mean Time, that's where the prime meridian is. It also divides the time zones. And so, in other words, it's through the prime meridian and the equator that we have a unified sense of direction and location because we now all agree on where zero degrees longitude is and we can now find our physical place in the world. And before this, before the end of the 19th century, when they found the, or declared the prime meridian, there were multiple places that people identified as zero degrees longitude. And so there were all kinds of maps that did not agree with each other, and it caused immense confusion. But with the prime meridian, we now have a central unifying focal point in which all direction and location takes its cues. And the point is obvious. The Bible is very much our prime meridian That's what Peter is saying on a spiritual level. I mean, think about it, folks. It's a Bible that allows us to navigate this world with lots of direction, right? It's a Bible that allows us to know where we are at any given moment. Whether you're stuck in sin or in a glorious place of grace or having trouble with your family or your finances have gone south or your kids are rebelling, trust me, this book is going to help you know exactly where you're at and what direction God wants you to take. The Bible is even a dividing line when it comes to things like salvation, truth, and our understanding of God, as we've seen even our understanding of our family, our culture, our money, everything. In short, it's the Bible that gives us our bearings. I love how Elias Boudinot, an early statesman here in America and head of the Continental Congress in the 1780s once put it, Look up here on the screen. He says, uh, were you to ask me to recommend the most valuable book in the world, I should fix on the Bible as the most instructive, both to the wise and ignorant. Were you to ask me for one affording the most rational and pleasing entertainment to the inquiring mind, I should repeat it. It is the Bible. And the most interesting history, I should still urge you to look into your Bible. He says, I would make it, in short, the Alpha and the Omega of knowledge. So let me ask you here this morning, folks, is this book the Alpha and the Omega of your knowledge? Is it? Is it your prime meridian? I mean, one of the battles we have in our country is that most bookshelves and coffee tables in most homes have one on it. You can even get a Bible in just about any hotel room in America, right? And yet study after study shows that we are an increasingly biblically illiterate nation and even an increasingly biblically illiterate evangelical subculture. And yet the one who truly knows God, and I mean knows Him like a child does a father, or knows Him like you would know your best friends, those who know Him like this know Him in and through His Word. And so let's track where we've come from. Above all, make it your life's pursuit to know God. We know Him through our holiness. We know Him through our his word. And then lastly, but certainly not least, Peter makes one other thing clear, and that is that we know him, and this is going to pull it all together, by growing in grace. We know him by growing in grace. Look at how Peter wraps all of this up in verse 18. 
He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I love that phrase, but grow in grace. It's like a grace-filled phrase about grace. That word grow here is the Greek word alzano. And get this, it literally means simply to increase, to move forward. It carries the picture of someone not standing still, but on the move. Somebody who's always moving forward and up. It's a progressional term in the original Greek. And it's a present tense imperative verb, which is important for you and I, because what it means is that Peter's commanding us to grow, but he's also saying, and just continue to grow. Present tense, kind of continuing on, but it's an imperative. And what are we to grow in? Don't you love it? Grace. He's saying just keep moving forward in grace. And in case you don't know here this morning, grace is simply God's unconditional love and favor shown to you. It's a fact that no matter what you have done, no matter how far you've strayed, God still loves you. And He came for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And what is so cool, folks, is that just about every New Testament letter begins and ends on a grace note. Have you ever noticed that? Just about every New Testament letter. I mean, Peter's not unique here. Most all of the letters in the New Testament have some kind of introduction that encourages them with grace, and then it ends with a closing that says, oh yeah, and by the way, don't forget grace. I mean, talk about an above-all-else word. And without growing in grace, without an ever-increasing understanding of God's awesome love for you and the unmerited favor He has shown you, you won't know God. But grow in grace. Focus and relish on His amazing love and mercy for you each moment of each day. And you will find yourself drawn to God in ways that you never thought possible. And so I mentioned earlier that we need to make sense of this idea of grace in light of the other two things we looked at, especially in light of that first thing, holiness. So as we're getting down to the short strokes here this morning, let me just quickly put all of this together with the other two things that we've looked at this morning so that we can very clearly all know how this works. This is really important. Look up here on the screen. St. Augustine once said this. He once said, Nothing whatever in the way of goodness pertaining to godliness and real holiness can be accomplished without grace. I, I think that is a really important statement there. Nothing whatever in the way of goodness and pertaining to godliness and real holiness can be accomplished without grace. And I think he's right. And I think what he's getting at here, folks, is that without grace, without getting and living God's manifold love and mercy to you no matter what, then holiness isn't going to mean very much to you. Knowledge won't mean very much to you when it comes to truly knowing God. That grace is what pulls it all together. It makes sense of everything else that God asks us to do. So look up here on the screen. Let me give you a few phrases that have helped me over the years. I learned this early on in my walk with God, and this has carried me the distance. You ready for this? And that is that holiness without grace will become legalism. And similarly, knowledge without grace will become dead orthodoxy. And so to put it positively, grace turns holiness into joy and knowledge into intimacy. Boy, please don't miss this. It is grace, this idea that every New Testament letter begins and ends with, that John says Jesus came to us full of. It's this idea of grace, God's manifold love and mercy to you that pulls it all together. 
It is grace that allows you to be holy without reducing, reducing your faith to a bunch of rules or a lifestyle to conform to. It's grace that allows you to have true knowledge about God without having to simply have your, your Christian life be the accumulation of a bunch of facts or mental assent to a few key doctrines. In short, it's grace that keeps our faith relational in nature, that draws us close to God in relationship, minding us that at the core God wants all of us, our mind as well as our heart, our intellect as well as our behaviors, and that He even accepts us completely with all of our warts and pimples. And when you get this, when you understand that even amidst His call to be holy, and even amidst His challenge to know Him in His Word, that He's an immense God of grace, and forgiveness and compassion, and that He loves you and longs to know you, this draws you to Him, and it turns your holiness into joy, and your knowledge becomes intimacy with the God who made you and loves you. And so let me leave you with this question this morning. How much is grace a part of your walk with God, your Father? That's the question I want you to wrestle with for for this week, maybe. How much is grace a part of your walk with Almighty God. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we live in America. We live in an evangelical subculture here in America in which we have so many resources, so many messages, so many things that come our way that there are all different shapes and sizes of Christians. We have Christians that focus more on behaviors, Christians that focus more on emotions, Christians that focus more on the mind, and that's all good. I love the diversity of our country. But one of the things that the Bible says is for everyone. One of the things that the Bible says everyone needs to overdose on is this idea of grace. Because whether you tend to be an intellectual person or an emotional person or more of an action person, all of us need to understand and live God's grace or we won't relate to Him, we won't know Him as He wants to be known. A real quick closing thought. This is exactly what the story of the prodigal son when you focus on the older brother is trying to communicate to us. Do you remember that story? Uh, about the two sons and the one who had the, wanted to get his inheritance early, like before his old man was dead. And so he asked for the inheritance. His dad gave it to him, and he went and squandered it on wine, women, and song. And the older son stayed home and worked the farm. And then the younger son, you know, kind of hit hard times and said, well, I think I'll go back and ask God for, or ask my dad for mercy. And he went back, and he asked his dad for mercy, and his dad gave him mercy, Right? And, uh, and, and then the older son said, oh, dad, that's just so awesome that you did that. I've really learned a good lesson from this. No, he didn't say that, right? The older son was out in the field and he heard this party going on. He said to one of the servants, what's happening? And the servant said, oh, most exciting thing of the whole year, the younger son's come home. And he, and he wants to make right with dad and dad's showing him mercy and we're throwing a big party. and We've killed a fatted calf and isn't this great? And the older son did not say it was great. The older son said, this is wrong. And the dad came out to talk to the older son. You guys remember the story, right? And the older son said, look, I've been the one staying home working the farm. I've been the one working hard. I've been the one living the rules and obeying you. And the son who didn't live the rules, who didn't obey, but now is a recipient of your grace. That is not fair. That is not right. And I don't like it. And he wouldn't go in and party with them. And what did the father say? The father said this. The father said, oh, son, you don't get it. Everything that I have is yours. And what most commentators point out, by the way, is that that's literally true because the younger son spent his inheritance, right? So like, hey, kid, you know what? You're going to get yours someday, and, and, and it's not going to get squandered. Everything I have is yours. He said, but this younger son was lost, and now he's found. He, he didn't understand grace. Now he gets grace. And, and the implicit message that Jesus ends the story with is this. 
is that older son, you better get grace too. Because you see, older son, to the point that you don't get grace is to the point that you're going to be left out of the party. To the point that you don't get grace is to the point that you won't have joy. To the point that you don't get grace is to the point that you will not be in relationship with the Father. You're going to be at odds with Him like the older son was with his father. Do you all get the point? That grace is that important. Whether it's grace that happens to you or grace that happens to somebody else, God's reserved grace for us. And grace, don't ever forget this, turns your holiness into joy. And it turns that, that, that wonderful knowledge that you have from God's Word into intimacy with Him. Bathe yourself in grace. It's that important. One of the things I love about the history of our church under Daryl's leadership and Jim Bourne, Don Snookin, is that these were all men who in their own ways really got grace. And one of the most endearing stories that I've ever heard people tell me about Daryl is how when somebody would come to town and say they wanted to plant a church or start a new church, Daryl would invite that person here to speak, haul him up on the stage, endorse the thing, if it was an evangelical Bible-believing church, and then tell you all to go to it. And, and I just got to let you know, as a guy who's been, you know, in three other churches and knows a lot of churches, that doesn't happen very often, right? Like, that's like the kiss of death when it comes to your growth and things like that, especially in the early days when you just have a few hundred people. But Daryl, just, that was just so much a part of his heart. And I remember when I was candidating here and interviewing, and they told me that story, I said, wow, this is the kind of church I want to be in, because that's my heart too. And, uh, and I love that. And so, Dan, why don't you and your crew come down? Here's what happened about uh, three, four months ago. Dan Scruggs, who's one of our sitting elders on the board, uh, came to the elders and he said, I want to plant a church. He said, God called me five years ago to plant a church, and I kind of rebuffed his call. I didn't really want to do it. And he said, but as God can only do, because we're going to study the book of Jonah, guys, here in a little bit, you'll see this. As God can only do, he said he continued to hound me, and I've really heard his call to start a church, and I want to start a church. Why don't you guys come up on the stage here? And, uh, and so we said, well, Dan, tell us about the church. And he said, well, this is going to be a church that really reaches out to the hurting, really reaches out to those who, who maybe have been uh, dissuaded from going to church for a while, but it's going to stay very close to preaching the Word. In fact, he has a vision statement that, that he has written that's been really encouraging to us as, as fellow elders. And I just want to make sure I get it right here. It's follow his direction, focus on spiritual maturity, and finish in community service. And so Dan and his team have thought long and hard about what kind of church they dream of having. And then we said, well, where do you want to plant this church? Like, please don't tell us it's on Shea and Miller or something like that, but where do you vision planting this church? And Dan said, you know what, I, I, I've targeted either Rio Verity or Fountain Hills. And, uh, and as the Lord led, uh, God has lifted up some wonderful resources in Fountain Hills for Dan and his team. Uh, we said to Dan at that time, that uh, because Dan has been a sitting elder in this church, he's a licensed pastor. He's had his own ministry for 12 years now called Mirror Ministry, in which he leads multiple Bible studies in the community. He's been an enrichment class leader here, enrichment class teacher here, a men's ministry teacher. He's involved with Peacemakers International. 14 years at Scottsdale Bible. We said, Dan, we could not get a stronger endorsement for a church plant uh, out of our church right now. Let's run with this. So our elders and our staff have been working with Dan and praying with Dan and and encouraging him this whole way. And they start services in Fountain Hills on August 16th. Wow, that's just three weeks from now. And uh, and you see behind me here just a portion of Dan's team, the people that are going to be comprising North Chapel, which is what you decided to call it, right? Bummer God didn't take you north. But anyways, North Chapel is uh, what the Lord's called you to. And uh, Dan, we just want you to know that, that we're very, very excited 
about what God has for you. We could not give a stronger affirmation to this church that the Lord's called you to plant. As you know, we even sent out letters from me to the three or 400 people that live in Fountain Hills that call this church home, encouraging them to check it out and uh, if God would leave them there to, to join your team. And uh, so just tell us a little bit about what we can pray for you for, and then we're going to pray and also take up a special offering for you. But why don't you first share a little bit of your heart. Well, thank you, Jamie. Uh, we uh, at North Chapel uh, have a, a uh, mandate, and that is to love people. So the first thing that we can ask you to pray for, and we covered your prayers, uh, is the people. Uh, that God would prepare the hearts of the people that are there, uh, that when we come there, that they will be open and receptive to us, that those who have a hunger and a thirst for the Lord uh, will show up at our door. Uh, secondly of all is that you can pray uh, for our posture, that uh, we, uh, as members of North Chapel and uh, the leadership team, will posture ourselves as servants, and that we will be visible in the community with no agenda other than to serve the people in the community. And lastly, uh, if you would pray that we would have provision by God, that God would provide the funding for us, that God would provide the materials. Uh, we need uh, 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 baby beds, and uh, it's a startup venture, so we're starting from scratch, and so that God would provide for us. So people, uh, posture, and provision, those are the things that... Uh, we would ask that you would pray for, uh, that we could partner with God and that God could use us uh, in a mighty way. Uh, he's already done that. Uh, look at the people that he's given us. Uh, we started in February. We had no people. We had no place. And we had no money. Uh, now we have people and a place. So two out of three is good, I think. Dan, you sound like a preacher with those three P's. I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that from you. So that's, that preaches. Um, and Dan is a preacher, by the way, and he's a very good teacher of the Word of God and very clear and, and very passionate. And, uh, Dan, we, we want to support you in that way. We do want to pray for you. And we are, we do want to help Dan with the provision. And so as we put in the bulletin last week, we're going to be taking up a special offering here in a minute to help, uh, North with the provisions that they need as you guys go out. And we want to support you that way too. And so here's what I'm going to ask you folks to do. Um, one of the traditions that we started a couple of years ago when I came here is that when we pray as a congregation over somebody, uh, your arm might get a little bit tired, but if you feel led, just lift up your arm in prayer as a, as a show of support toward Dan and his team. And let's bow together right now and let's pray for Dan and for his team. Father God, I thank you for just uh, your leading in Dan's life and in the lives of the people that stand behind me here and, and many others that are going to call North Chapel their home. And uh, Lord, as we all know, kingdom work begins with a vision. It begins with a call from you. And uh, then you enter in and it just takes off. And Lord, that would be our humble prayer for Dan, that, it, that this church really truly would be one that's focused on people that would have a posture that uh, has just incredible influence in the community, and that, Lord, you would just show yourself as a God of provision for them. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would protect them from the ploys of the evil one who would like nothing more than to sabotage this effort. Keep them unified. Keep them close with each other. Keep them having uh, short accounts on their leadership team with each other so that the evil one has no foothold. Father, bless them in the richest way when it comes to their preaching, when it comes to their fellowship, when it comes to their worship. 
when it comes to their children's and it comes to their teens, when it comes to their love for each other and their love for the community. And Lord, we would pray for their provision. We would pray, God, that as there are so many needs when you're starting a church without a building and without all the things that many churches are blessed with today, that, that God, you would just provide for them each step of the way and use us, God, in this initial step in sending them off with just a real attaboy, with a real encouragement from this church. God, remind them that the partnership does not end here, that it just begins here now, as uh, we now partner with another church that we call a a sister church of ours. And uh, we look forward to what you're going to do in and through them. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all of us say together, Amen. Amen.